Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Peter approached Jesus and asked him, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how often must I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus answered, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. This is why the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who decided to sell accounts with his servants. When he began the accounting, a debtor who brought before him, who owed him a huge amount, since he had no way of paying it back, his master ordered him to be sold, along with his wife, his children, all his property and payment of the debt. At that, the servant fell down, did him homage, and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay back in full. Moved with compassion, the master of that servant let him go, forgave him the loan. When that servant had left, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a much smaller amount. He seized him, started to choke him, demanding, Pay back what you owe. Falling to his knees, his fellow servant begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had the fellow servant put in prison until he paid back the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were deep, deeply disturbed and went to their master and reported the whole affair. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you your entire debt because you begged me to. Should you not have had pity on your fellow servant as I have pity on you? Then in anger, his master handed him over to be tortured until he should pay back the whole debt. So will my heavenly Father do to you, unless each of you forgive his brother from his heart. When Jesus finished these words, he left Galilee and went to the district of Judea across the Jordan. The Gospel of the Lord. Seventy-seven times. Woo! That's a lot of forgiving. I'm not sure I can do seventy-seven times. But then I remember how many times I've gone to confession in my life. What if God had said to all of us, you know what, I'm going to give you ten confessions. But then after the ten, that's it. We're done. No, God's mercy is infinite. God's mercy is everlasting. We can go to him and for, ask for forgiveness again and again our whole life, and we will, and we'll receive that forgiveness. Jesus is calling you and I to that sort of forgiveness. Jesus calls us to be like God and to forgive as God does, not just a few times, but always. Tonight, I would like to invite you to reflect on how might we call upon the Holy Spirit to bring about a spirit of forgiveness within us so that we can be more like Christ in forgiveness. I would like to propose that there are eight myths, eight 
falsehoods, eight things that we sometimes believe unconsciously that, that mess us up as we're trying to live this life of forgiveness. Myth number one, to forgive means to place myself in harm's way again. Sometimes Christianity calls us to be in harm's way. That's what the path of martyrdom is all about. But most of the time, most of the time, the Lord wants us to protect the temple of the Holy Spirit that we call our bodies. And so forgiving a person doesn't mean we place ourselves in harm's way again. It doesn't mean we open ourselves up to be hurt by this person again. Myth number two, we must forgive and forget. Many people think that Jesus said this. He never said it. He never said forgive and forget. He said forgive again and again and again and again in the Gospels. He never mentioned forget. This is from the 14th century, that phrase, forgive and forget. Jesus wouldn't ask us to do something impossible. And it's really impossible for us to forget when we've been hurt. So he's not asking you to forget. He's only asking you to forgive. Myth number three. To forgive means that we never hold a person responsible. Sometimes the morally right thing, sometimes the loving thing to do is to forgive the person and yet still hold them responsible for their actions. If you have been a mother or a father raising a small child, you know that there are times that the most loving thing you can do for your children as they're growing up is to hold them responsible for their behavior. This is true at times for us adults as well. Sometimes the morally right thing is to hold them responsible. We forgive, but sometimes we still hold them responsible, and it's what God wants us to do. Other times, God would want us to even let go this, even let go the responsible part of it. You notice in the gospel today that the good master who was owed such a large sum of money, he didn't say to the servant, okay, I'll give you more time to pay it off. He forgave the debt. He completely wrote it off. So sometimes we do write off the debt altogether. Myth number four. This is a myth. It's wrong. But sometimes we believe it is okay to revel in a sinner's misery. It's okay to revel in a sinner's misery. That's a myth. It's wrong. But we all do it. There's a, a German word that I heard, uh, that I learned only recently, and I think it's a wonderful word. We need a word for what we do so badly so often. It's called Schadenfreude. Have you heard of it? Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude means that you take joy and pleasure in another person's downfall. Now, none of us want to think of ourselves that way, but all of us do that a, a little bit anyway. When you're watching the news and you hear about some reprehensible behavior about a person on TV, uh, some reprehensible behavior that they committed, don't you really wish for a really long sentence for this person in jail? And you don't wish for it in order to protect the innocent or anything. You just want that little tinge of righteous anger and, and joy at knowing that the bad guy 
got to go to jail and he's going to stay there. He got his just desserts. This is not the Christian way. Why do we put people in jail? There are good reasons to put people in jail. We put people in jail to protect the innocent if this person is a dangerous person. We put people in jail perhaps to help that person to become a better person, to become, please God, even more Christian. But we never put a person in jail. We Christians are never to put a person in jail for revenge. In the early history of the United States, in Pennsylvania, there was a movement called the Modern Prison Movement. It was founded by the Quakers. It was the Quakers who took over the prison system, and they specifically used the word penitentiary. Have you ever thought of that word penitentiary? It means a place to do penance. And the Quakers sincerely dreamed of taking someone who did some crime and they, they invented this new thing of putting them each in their own cell. They did it not as a punishment, but in hopes that they would reflect on their life silently, quietly. They put a Bible in the room and hoped that it would be what we Christians, what we Catholics would think of as a sort of retreat for them. That's what penitentiary means, doing penance, reforming your life. But sometimes, in my heart, I want somebody to go to jail so that they get their just desserts. And that's not the Christian way. We've been talking about the jails, but isn't there, don't we have our own sort of jail system when our loved ones hurt us, when our neighbor hurts us? Don't we put them in a sort of a jail? We give them a little bit of the silent treatment. We make little jabs here and there. We deprive them of our love and affection for a while. Myth number five. Either I have forgiven or I have not. There is no in-between. The truth is, there is an in-between. What I mean by that is, when we are hurt deeply, sometimes it takes a long time. And sometimes we forgive in increments. And perhaps we need to be patient with ourselves as we're going through the difficult, painful process of forgiving. It sometimes comes in stages. I recommend that we work on forgiveness of the will. In other words, we make a choice to act out of a spirit of forgiveness, and we pray for forgiveness of the heart. That's a grace that comes from God. It usually comes later. So we work on forgiveness of the will and we pray for forgiveness of the heart. But it takes a while. Sometimes we forgive just a little bit and we pray some more, we forgive a little more, and over time we, we get to a final complete forgiveness. St. Ignatius of Loyola says when you're searching for, when you're striving to receive some sort of virtue or grace and you don't have it yet, he says you should act as if you had it. Act as if you already had that grace and it will dispose you for the grace coming from God. We call that faking it until you're making it. You fake it until you make it. Sometimes we're not ready to forgive. It's too hard. And I think Ignatius would ask us to fake it until we make it. To act as if we have that spirit of forgiveness. 
to treat the person as though we had already forgiven them in our heart. And then that will lead us to be disponable, disposable for God to give us that grace of forgiveness of the heart. Forgiveness comes slow sometimes. It comes in increments. I studied psychology for a long time, and there's a type of psychology called gestalt. And there's a a method in gestalt therapy where the person that you're angry with, you place them in a chair in front of you in your imagination. You place an empty chair in front of you, and you talk to the empty chair. And you keep doing that until you reach some resolution. Years and years ago, under the advice of St. Ignatius, I was trying to, to get to a place of forgiveness in my heart for someone who had hurt me deeply. And I wasn't getting there. And I took this little advice from psychology, from the Gestalt therapy. I actually had three chairs. I sat in one. I asked Jesus to sit in the other chair. And I asked the person who hurt me to sit in the third chair. And I talked to that person. And I faked it. I faked it. I said, you know, I looked him in the eye and I said, I forgive you. I release you. I wish you well. And I didn't mean a word. But I wanted to, I wanted to mean it. St. Ignatius also says, if you want a grace that you don't have, do you have the desire for it? And even if you don't have the desire for it, he says, do you have the desire for the desire? We'll start there. Well, I had the desire for the desire. Day after day, I sat in front of those empty chairs, Jesus in one, this man in the other. I forgive you. I release you. I wish you well. I did it day after day, week after week. If I remember correctly, it was months. There was a day, I'm here to tell you, sisters and brothers, there was a day when I said it, And I meant it. I meant it. It came. The grace came from God. Praise God, huh? But it came in stages. It came incrementally. And I had to be patient with myself before I could get to that place. Myth number six. Only the forgiven person benefits from my forgiveness. I benefit from forgiving as well. I might even benefit even more from forgiving another. There's an expression that says, hate is always wielded by the blade. What it means is that if you can imagine this bizarre sword that has no handle, only a blade, that's what hate is. That's what the expression of hate is. If you're going to hold and wield hate to hurt someone with this blade, All the while, you're hurting yourself. Hate is wielded by the blade. If hate is wielded by the blade, so is unforgiveness. We hurt ourselves when we don't forgive. You know that shackle, that that ankle handcuff that's on an ankle that has a chain and it goes to another person's ankle? In all of the cartoons, you see these two prisoners and they're They're shackled together. They're running together as they're trying to escape. These two prisoners shackled together. When we refuse to forgive a person, we're chaining that person to ourselves, And we're carrying that person around us with us everywhere we go. Why would we do that? 
Why would we carry this person in our hearts and in our minds everywhere we go? We shackle that person to us, forgiving to, for, 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 refusing to forgive them all the while. And so when we release them, we free both of us. Both of us are freed. It's a myth to think that only the other person benefits. I benefit as well. Perhaps I benefit more. Many years ago, this person uh, that I found out that this uh, person who I considered a friend was was sort of looking out for my harm. He had a bit of Schadenfreude in him. He was uh, felt betrayed by me, and so he was looking out for my own harm. And it was very painful for me to come to that realization. And this went on for months. And I went to my eight-day retreat with that very painful reality that this guy is watching me, waiting for me to screw up. And on my retreat, I found myself praying over the beautiful 23rd Psalm. You lead me to verdant valleys, huh? beside restful waters. It's a beautiful psalm. It seems like such a bucolic setting, huh? just a gorgeous beautiful scene full of peace and joy and when I first prayed it that's how I experienced it and I went back to it and prayed over it again and read the words of the 23rd Psalm a little bit closer see if you can finish this line you set a table before me in the sight of my foes in the sight of my foes That's not a fun dinner. You set the table before me in the sight of my foes. So the first time I prayed over it, I was just enjoying the gumbo and the jambalaya and the sauce piquant. The next time I prayed it, here I was enjoying this banquet, but by the out on a field, uh, and there was the restful waters and the and the beautiful field. But there were bushes now, and that guy was looking at me through the bushes. In the sight of my foes, you set a table before me. And I was deeply disturbed by it. I was deeply disturbed. I kept praying. And at some point, I got the grace. I took an empty plate, filled it with the sauce pecan and the gumbo and the jambalaya, and I walked over to the bush and I said, it must be exhausting all of that watching you're doing. Why don't you have a plate of food? I have plenty. And I went back to my table. I sat down another moment. And then I turned around and went back to him and I said, You know, you can see me a lot better if you come over and sit at the table with me. Why don't you come and sit beside me? And then the dream ended in my prayer time. It stopped right there. I have no idea what he did in my imaginative fantasy there. But I know that I receive this grace of peace. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. You spread the table before me in the sight of my foes. I'm at peace. I'm at peace. Myth number seven. If I've forgiven everyone else in my life, then I am finished. You're not finished then. You still have one more person to forgive. Yourself. Yourself. 
There's a disturbing line from uh, the Gospels where Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven except for one, the unforgivable sin. And scripture scholars have been arguing for decades, centuries, really about what is this unforgiven sin. No one really knows. If anybody is certain what it is, then uh, you can sort of smile and know that they're making a conjecture because no one is very sure exactly what Jesus meant by that. But here's something I think we can be sure of. God's power to forgive is stronger than anything else in the world. So perhaps this unforgivable sin has something to do with there's a sin inside of me that I haven't given Christ permission to forgive yet. I haven't turned it over to Christ yet. I won't let him forgive me. I won't let him forgive me. And so the unforgivable sin becomes unforgivable to you. It's you who won't forgive. And Christ is waiting for you. One of my favorite definitions of the confessional is it's the place where we go and finally give God permission to forgive us. But the unforgivable sin is the one sin that you have never given God permission to forgive. Because you want to dwell in that guilt. You have not released yourself of it. What is your unforgivable sin? And what will it take for you to finally turn it over to the Lord? The Lord's been waiting a long time. If I have to forgive everyone else 77 times, how many times am I going to forgive myself? Myth number eight. To forgive means that all the hurt and pain is wiped away. We all know that's not true, don't we? There's a story about a man who was very kind and loving and a good father, but his son was very rebellious, and he hurt his father again and again and again. And every time he hurt his father, the father would go out with great anguish, and just to do something physical, he would go in his backyard, and he'd grab some nails and a hammer, and he'd go to this old dead tree in the backyard, and he would hammer a nail for every time his son would hurt him. And this went on for quite a while. There were a lot of nails in that old tree. After a long time, the son finally went through a conversion. And he went back to the father and he begged the father to forgive him. And the father gave him a great big hug and says, Yes, son, of course you're forgiven. I forgive you. And they cried a while together. And the son said, Father, can we go outside and pull out all those nails out of that tree? And the son said, let's go. They went out there and they took the back of that hammer and they were pulling out all these nails in this old dead tree. And at first they were filled with joy, but then the son got sad again. And the father said, why are you sad? And the son said, because the holes are still there. And we know that's true, don't we? That even after the forgiveness, even after the reconciliation, the holes are still there. 
that's not the end of the story. A while later, the son came back to visit his father. And he noticed that his father had chopped down the old dead tree. He went inside the house and there's a beautiful, warm fireplace. And above the warm fireplace, the father, who was a craftsman, had, had used his carpentry skills to, to, to build this beautiful mantelpiece. Beautiful mantelpiece out of that old dead tree. And it was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. And what made it the most beautiful thing were those old holes in the tree. The holes themselves are what made it beautiful. I'm not much of a furniture shopper, but I'm told if you go to a furniture store, a really nice one, you'd have to pay a lot of money for what they call distressed wood. Distressed wood. What makes it so beautiful? It's the distress that makes it beautiful. And what is our faith if not a belief that Jesus Christ can turn every wound, every hole into something beautiful? Isn't that the story of the crucifixion? That's the whole story. That's the one story that Christians rely on. Is that, that God can take something horrific, something painful, some terrible wound, and transform it into resurrection, into beauty. And God can do that with our holes as well. It's a myth that the hurt and pain are wiped away, but they are transformed. They're made into something beautiful, perhaps even an instrument of our own salvation.